2: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, based in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Gail. Thank you. Let's just start with your background a little bit and then we'll get into the agency's uh, history.
3: Okay. Well, I always like to start with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Our name starts with Consumer because we're all about making sure that American consumers get the information and the fair treatment that they need to make the decisions about money that will help them serve their own life goals. So that's what we're all about here at the Bureau. We are a regulator. We write rules. We're an overseer. We make sure everybody has to follow the same rules, whether they're bank or non-bank providers of financial services. We also work in consumer education to make sure that consumers have the information they need to make the choices that will serve their own goals.
2: Okay. Let's tell us a little bit about your background before you got to CFPB.
3: Uh, I worked in consumer uh, policy on consumer issues, particularly on money issues. and Unfortunately, I saw a lot of consumers who uh, took out a product that didn't serve them well. And we have a chance at the Bureau to help make sure people know what they're getting into before they make those choices.
2: For people who may not be aware, let's kind of do it. Since It's been a pretty brief history. Mm-hmm. Give a brief history of the formation of the CFPB being part of the Dodd-Frank regulation, what the need for it was, and, and uh, kind of a little bit of legislative history to create in the first place. Uh, not only in itself, but it was consolidating many agencies and functions that had been throughout the federal government.
3: Yeah, so during the run-up to the mortgage meltdown, a couple of things happened. Uh, some people were too optimistic about the loans they were getting, but many people were getting something different from what they thought they were getting. And they were being underwritten and sold loans based on the temporary rate and not how much it was really going to cost over time. And the result of that was we all got hurt. Some people lost their homes and have the pain of foreclosure, Some people saw their housing values go down, even if they had taken out a loan that wasn't especially unusual or exotic, because if your neighbor's in foreclosure, your house value goes down. Lots of folks lost retirement savings, and many people lost jobs. So as Congress was looking at what to do about the meltdown and how to make sure that we got better consumer protection and financial regulation, they said, let's put it all in one place. And a job that had been scattered out between seven or more federal agencies, consumer financial protection was all put, mostly put in one place, and that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So the mission of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is to help consumer finance finance markets work by making rules more effective, by consistently, fairly, and even-handedly enforcing those rules, and also by empowering consumers to take more control of their economic lives. And we do that by using all of the tools. We understand the markets, we study them, We write rules about them. We apply those rules even handily and fairly. And we help to educate the customer to ask their own questions.
2: So this all sounds very logical. Why was there any resistance at all to the creation of the CFPB as there was? Uh, In in fact, the chairman was not uh, officially uh, approved by the Senate for quite a while. What, what, What was the opposition to the creation of the CFPB in the first place?
3: Well, you know I never talk about politics. We're here now. And um, the reason we're here is that consumer protection wasn't always front and center in thinking about financial services regulation, and there was no federal entity that could write and in- both write and enforce regulations for non-bank providers. And so both of those things were changed with the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau.
2: Okay, so we're going to go into a whole bunch of different areas that you're regulating now and educating consumers about. Before we get into the specifics, can I give me an overall view of your view of consumers and their their, their sense of financial education, the level of protection of them now compared to before the CFPB was formed?
3: So we'll talk in some detail about the new mortgage rules. That's a fundamental set of new protections for every consumer in the country who is thinking about buying a home and financing it, who already owns a home and maybe refinancing it. That's a big chunk of new rights and protections for consumers. More generally, we do know that uh, consumers do need more uh, financial education, financial skills. The, uh, there's a 2009 survey by FINRA where only one-third of people said uh, well, one-third of people admitted that they didn't shop around for the last home loan. You're going to save a lot of money if you shop around for a home loan and leave a lot of money on the table if you don't. And yet, uh, one-third of people said, I didn't shop, and that suggests the actual number might be a little higher. We also know that um, not every household in America has emergency savings, and yet that's a very important way to protect yourself in the financial services market. So you can choose, do I need to borrow or should I borrow it from myself from my savings?
2: And what has been the reaction from the financial industry so far to the CFPB? Have they, in general, been cooperating with you or resisting uh, the rules and regulations you've been uh, putting out?
3: We've done, in the regulatory side and in other work areas, we've done a very extensive job of reaching out to industry and consumer groups and individual consumers and asking a couple of questions. We ask, what do you think? We ask, how is this actually going to work in practice in your industry or for the consumers you care about or for you yourself as an individual consumer? Then we really listen to those answers. Now, that doesn't mean we do everything that any one of those groups tells us, but it does mean we think long and hard. If the industry says, you know, we have an operational problem with this, we think about that. If consumer groups say this doesn't go far enough, we think about that. And when individuals come to us with complaints, which they can do at consumerfinance.gov, or with Tell Your Story, where they tell us what's happened to them in the marketplace. We take that very seriously and look at what we can, what can, we can do to um, help make those problems disappear, not just for the one person who told us about it, but for everybody that it's happening to.
2: You do not handle individual cases for consumers, but basically the consumer complaints you get are a way of you monitoring what's going on trend-wise that you can see if there's a problem. Is that the idea?
3: Oh well, we do two things. You can just tell us your story, and we'll take that in for trend information, or you can actually file a complaint at 855-411-CFPB or on our website at consumerfinance.gov. If you file a complaint with us, we will share it with the bank or non-banker you complained about and ask them what they're going to do for you. We do have a very good success rate. Sometimes you just need another pair of eyes at the company looking at what happened to say, oops, we could have treated this customer better.
2: But if the, if the bank or non-financial institution basically doesn't do anything um, and doesn't respond in any way that the consumer is happy with, is that the end of it or can you go further on the consumer's behalf if you think the consumer has a legitimate complaint?
3: So we enforce the law. If, if, so what we will do is first we'll ask the entity, can it, you know, what are you going to do for this customer? Uh, often things are resolved there. Then we'll ask the customer, are you happy with the resolution? If the customer says they're not happy, we will take a look at that file to see if we think any of the laws that we enforce were broken. And if they were broken, we have another process to feed that back into our work. Um, so we have had some enforcement actions that have come from consumer complaints.
2: So it's enforcement actions on a wider basis, or is it just by the specific consumers?
3: We're not going to be your individual lawyer. For that, you need your own lawyer. But if you tell us about a problem that does violate the law and does seem to be happening to a lot of folks, we might investigate that and take further action on it, either on the enforcement side, or we are a a supervisory agency. That's fancy jargon for we go into companies and say, open your books, show us how you're complying with the law, and we can put this on the list of things that we should look at if it's happening to a lot of people.
2: What would be an example of something where there are a lot of consumers complaining about a particular area, you saw a trend, and then you moved in to create new regulations based on what you'd heard from consumers?
3: Well, it could be new regulations or it could be enforcement actions, not always regulations. So Mm -hmm. in the mortgage area, consumers are complaining not only to us, but to everyone who would listen. They lost my paperwork. I had to keep making the same phone call again and again. Every time I call up, I talk to another person who doesn't know what promises are made to me last time. So when we put through the mortgage servicing rule, which is one of the new rules that went into effect just um, January 10, those rules have some pretty common sense requirements to put the service back in servicing. They require that there be a point of contact who actually has access to all the prior communications between you and the servicer so that you don't have to keep telling the same information again and again. They require that the servicer have an information request process. You can ask for information about what they have in their file on you. They require that the servicer have an error resolution process with a timeline so that there's actually a guaranteed time by which they have to investigate what you point out that you think might be wrong. And they even require something really simple that it's hard to believe. We didn't have this already, but we didn't. Your payment has to be treated as if it was was good on the day you got it. It has to be credited as of the day that it got to the lending service. So they can't say, "Oh, you know, we're going to credit all the payments next week."
2: I say, very good. All right, well, let's get into that a little bit because this is really a, a new thing that's kind of come along. Uh, first of all, I mean, we described it a little bit, but I, again, describe uh, what the problem has been and what this new—it's not only mortgage servicing, but it's also upfront in the kind of mortgage you're going to take in the first place. What was the problem, and how is this rule designed to uh, alleviate that problem?
3: That's correct. So the the rules address two different kinds of problems, one in mortgage origination, making of a mortgage, and one in servicing. In servicing, the issue was surprises and runarounds, and we've talked about the no runarounds aspect of the new rules. There also was a problem, continues until quite recently, to be a problem with consumers who weren't told about all of their rights and options. So under the new servicing rule, if you are in trouble with your home loan, you should call your servicer and you should try to get a HUD-certified housing counselor. You can go to HUD.gov and look up how to get a person in your area to help advise you on this this difficult process. But we were finding that people were contacting their servicers, and they were not being told about all the choices available to them. So under the new mortgage servicing rule, if the consumer files a completed application on time for loss mitigation, the servicer will have to look at them for whatever they qualify for and will have to tell the borrower, your lender offers these four programs or these six programs and you qualify for these and you don't qualify for these and here's why not. So you can actually know what's what and make some decisions about, you know, should you try and sell the house? Should you try to keep it? What choices do you have if you can't make the payment and you want to stay in your house? So that's the mortgage servicing side. No runarounds for everybody and prompt and fairer treatment for people who are in trouble. On the mortgage origination side, we all know during the run up to the meltdown, part of the problem is either there was no documentation. So the new rule says, you know what? Lenders actually do have to get information about your income and your assets and your credit record and they have to keep it on file. No more no more paper free loans. They actually have to know something about you before they make the loan. There was a problem with loans being underwritten just on the teaser rate, maybe the first six months rate, and not how much it was really going to cost. And then we had what people called exploding mortgages, where the payments just got so big that people couldn't pay them. And the rule addresses that by saying that every lender has to look at ability to repay. And then it's got some levels of how to do that and some ways to make it easier on certain kinds of safer loans for lenders to decide if you can afford to repay. So whether it's a new loan and you're a home buyer and you really want to keep that home and not just get into it and then lose it, or whether you are thinking about refinancing, your lender will have to ask those questions that they should have been asking all along. How much is your income? How much are your other debts? Are you going to be able to repay this loan over time? And then they will have to make a reasonable and good faith determination that the lender thinks you can repay the loan on the day they make it.
2: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The website to find out more about the Bureau is consumerfinance.gov. We'll be back after this.
4: Always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, Or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: time here on voiceamerica.com. We're always
4: talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money
2: Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Welcome back to the show, Gail. Thank you. We just want to talk a little bit more about this new mortgage rule, the so-called Qualified Mortgage Rule. Now, there are some specific uh, thresholds, I guess you might say, for where the banks are supposed to do as far as debt-to-income ratios. Why don't you explain that a little bit?
3: Sure. Let me start by just reminding folks where we left off. The basic uh, provision of the mortgage rule is ability to repay. Every lender has the ability to repay requirement, and there are different ways they can show ability to repay. Qualified mortgage is a... Kind of a carve out to make it easier to show ability to repay for loans that, uh, have certain basic, basic features of safety. So if a loan does not have negative amortization, you don't end up owing more than you started with, that's negative amortization, and it does not have a balloon payment, so you don't find out you've paid on time all the way to the end and then it costs more, you know, you you still haven't paid it off, then it can be a qualifying mortgage if it meets a couple of other things. It can be a qualified mortgage if the points and fees aren't more than 3%, and they can be a little higher on small ones, but 3% generally speaking. And if it either is a 43% DTI, meaning all your debts, 43% against your income, or for up to 7 years, it's a Fannie or Freddie Mac qualified loan, even if it's over that DTI. Or if it's held by a small, made by a small lender who's actually going to hold on to it, keep it in portfolio. So any one of those things combined with slightly safer features, like no negative amortization, allow a loan to be a qualified mortgage this is important. Qualified mortgages will be most of the market. We estimate about 92% of mortgages being made right now would fall in that bucket. And lenders can still make loans that do not meet the qualified mortgage definition. They just have to make sure you can afford to repay them.
2: So explain the 43% a little bit. Now this is all your debts. This would include car loans, credit cards, student loans, all your debts combined, Could not be more, including your mortgage, could not be four, 40, more than 43%. Of your income, is that correct?
3: That's correct. Now, that's your gross income, so that you haven't even taken out for income taxes and the like. So your gross income versus all your debts, 43%, that's to make sure that you've got some money left over for taxes and groceries and life insurance and all those things that are not debts, but that really matter.
2: So it seems to me that's, I mean, a lot of people have bought mortgages and homes with much more than 43%. I mean, it may not be smart, but they've done it anyway for whatever reason. So those people will not be able to get mortgages going forward, is that what you're saying?
3: No, this is absolutely wrong. People will be able to qualify for mortgages that do not meet the qualified mortgage definition. As long as a lender wants to loan the money, which you need, you need now, you always needed that, and as long as the lender is able to make a good faith determination that based on the person's finances, they'll be able to pay the loan back.
2: So what happens if the lender goes ahead and makes a loan based, based on a good faith estimate, mm-hmm. and then something goes wrong with the borrower, they lose their job, they have a disability, whatever, for whatever reason their income goes down, their other expenses go up for other reasons, and they uh, b- become delinquent and ultimately default on the loan. Do you go back to the lender and say, uh, you should have seen this coming and you, know, you, you made a mortgage that you shouldn't have made? What happens in that case?
3: No, what happens in that case, the lender would be fine. The rule the rule is practical, and it's balanced, and it thinks about the fact that lenders can't know the whole future, just like you and I don't know the whole future about our economic pictures. That's why we have to say We don't know what's going to happen next. So the loan, the ability to repay requirement is based on the information available and given at the time that the loan is made. If the lender doesn't have to predict whether or not you or your spouse are going to lose your job later. But if you're unemployed on the day they make the loan, they should know about that, and they should consider whether, in light of that fact, you have the ability to repay.
2: So I mean, a lot of people would say that the private industry has already done this. I mean, there was a lot of wild lending on no-doc loans and negative amortization loans and all these things back in the mid-2000s, but the, the private industry hasn't really been doing that for three or four years at least. So in certain ways, it's not going to change what's already been a tightened mortgage lending market. Is that what your perception, too?
3: Yes. In, in many ways, people are going to qualify... Today, the exact same way they qualified last week before these rules went into effect. But it does mean that as the economy improves and as lenders choose to loosen their underwriting standards, they'll be able to loosen them all the way up to where they're thinking you can repay the loan, but not to loosen them so much that we end up in the situation we had uh, in you know two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where people were being uh, told, "I'll give you a loan." and the payment will be this, and six months or two years later, the payment was twice that much. And they weren't so, in a position where they'd be able to pay it.
4: Yes, so that's all that. have to think about the-
3: that before they make you the loan. So yes. really, this is to make sure it doesn't happen again.
2: So I guess the overall criticism of this is that it, it's good, it means there'll be a lot fewer uh, foreclosures and delinquencies, but it's going to be harder for the average person who's got like a middling credit score, 10% down payment, not a long credit history, you know, first-time homebuyers in their 20s, to be able to qualify for mortgages under this new qualified mortgage uh, rules.
3: So I do not think it will be harder for people to qualify for mortgages if their record shows they'll be able to pay it back. This is designed to make sure that the dream of homeownership remains a dream and doesn't become a nightmare. And the last thing, that, that, the last thing that's good for consumers is what we had in 07 and 08 where people thought they were becoming homeowners, but really they were just losing their down payment and then losing the house. So right now, lenders are quite tight, and these rules don't require them to be any tighter than they are right now. In fact, there's some room for them as they start to loosen up for the rules to allow that to happen. We just want to make sure we don't get back in a situation where people are being marketed loans without any consideration of whether they can pay them back, because that's bad for not only the individual, it's bad for the community, the neighbors, and the neighborhood.
2: Are there specific places on the consumerfinance.gov website that people can find out more about this whole, uh, these new mortgage rules?
3: Yes. So if you go to consumerfinance.gov and just click right on the top on the mortgages, you'll come to a page that has something for home buyers. It has something for homeowners who might be more interested in, like, how do I ask questions about my current loan. It's got sample letters if you need to write to your lender and say, I have an information request, I think there's an error. It's got a sample of the mortgage statement that we will all be getting. Many people are getting that already, but not all lenders chose to send statements. So now if you don't have a coupon book, you'll get a statement. And it also has a guide for housing counselors and others who are helping people uh, understand these new rules. And all of that is at consumerfinance.gov.
2: And will this also change when you're originating a mortgage, when you're taking out a mortgage for the first place? Will this affect the documentation, the HUD 1 and the good faith estimate, all the things that go into taking out a mortgage in the first place? Will affect that paperwork that, that consumers would see?
3: The paperwork that you will see when you are getting a mortgage, particularly the paperwork that could be designed better so that you can really compare multiple offers and shop for the mortgage, will be changing, but those rules haven't, that rule has not yet gone into effect, so that'll be changing in 2015, not yet.
2: I see. Okay. All right. Well, that was helpful. Now we're going to go into another area, which is student loans, okay. which, is, which is an area that is of great concern to people. Some people call it a bubble. We have a huge rise in student loans. Uh, delinquencies have been going up. There's just a lot of concern about that. What are some of the concerns that CFPB has about the student loan situation, and what are you preparing, uh, either rules or re- regulations or uh, enforcement, to help out in that area?
3: Okay. So uh, in student loans, we estimate that existing student debt is now has now grown to over $1.2 trillion. Some of that is owed by young adults. Some of it is owed by their parents. Some of it is owed by their grandparents. And at this moment, when young borrowers are graduating into not the best job market we've ever seen, it's a special challenge. Every young person who is listening to this show and has a student loan that they cannot repay ought to take a hard look at income-based repayment. That's a system that allows you to pay a much smaller percentage of your income and stay on time with your loans. That means you protect your credit and keep your good credit record while you are and make a lower payment. So people should look at that. We also have an active um, public service pledge. We're asking public employers to give their employees that certification every year that they're in public service because if you're an income- based repayment, you know say you're a school teacher, you're just not making, uh, that much money relative to your student loans. If you're in, stay in public service for 10 years and you make your payments on time under income-based repayment for 10 years, you can be eligible to get the rest of it forgiven. But you've got to have proof that you're in public service for those 10 years. And they don't have to be consecutive. So it's important to get, if you're in public service, to get that evidence every year from your employer that you did work a year in public service.
2: Yeah, we, a, while we're on that, just to make what? sure we understand, public service means working for a state, local, or federal government agency. Is that right? Right. Right. Also, a 403B, uh, I mean, a, um, five, a 501C3 uh, non-for-profit group. Is that correct?
3: Yes. I mean, these programs are always complicated, but that's the gist of it. And we do have some information about that on our website at consumerfinance.gov.
2: And there are some ways to qualify for the income-based repayment if you're not working, if, but if your in debt-to-income ratio is at certain levels. Is that true?
3: Yes, yeah, so income-based repayment is available to everyone who has federal student loans, and we'll talk a little more about federal and private student loans in a moment. If you have federal student loans, you can look into income-based repayment. If you are on income-based repayment and you are a public servant, you may be able to get the part you didn't pay in the first 10 years forgiven, and that's why it's so important to document the public service.
2: Okay. All right, so w- once you've documented that, so that's one thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so w- what are some of the issues? You're seeing the rise in the amount of student loans... Uh, The interest rates were changed by the rules that that were set by Congress over the the last summer. What are some of the solutions you see for people who have this crushing amount of student loan debt?
3: So uh, one of the things that we're asking students and families to think about is before you take your first student loan, as you're thinking about how to pay for college, how much to borrow, college is still an engine of economic opportunity in America. It's still really important. But to make sure you understand from your financial aid offer, am I being offered a scholarship or a loan? How much am I going to borrow? What kind of a loan is it? Young people who maximize their federal student loans before they even think about private student loans get a couple of of important things. They'll generally get a lower interest rate with a federal loan. They get more consumer protections if they run into trouble. This income-based repayment that we talked about is for federal student loans but not for private student loans.
2: Do you um, see a lot of abuse going on in the private student loan area where people are paying high interest rates and having aggressive collection, uh, worse than what's going on, on the federal
3: side? We do see that people often don't know what kind of loan they have and may be taking private student loans before they have maxed out their federal student loans. Your federal student loans are going to be uh, written off if you die. Your private loans are not. That's actually important for your family. They, your federal student loans may be um, reduced or suspended if you're disabled. That could be very important for you. Depend, you know, young people always think they're invincible, but things do happen in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and your federal student loans allow you to take this payment level that's tied to your income. Your private student loans do not allow that. So for students, generally, their federal options are safer, and they should look at those first and make sure they're using those up first before they think about adding on private debt And then you also, unfortunately, this is a hard decision when you are 18, but you need to look at what's the total cost of the school going to be to me? If I borrow, how much am I going to owe? And on our website we have a tool called Paying for College which actually allows students to put in a couple of schools, to put in the actual information from their financial aid offers when they come out, you know, pretty soon here in March and April, and to yield information about if I borrow the rest, how much am I going to pay every single month for the first 10 years after I graduate? And that's called paying for college. You can see that at consumerfinance.gov. We've also been working with the Department of Education on a paper form that people will get with their financial aid package that will actually show them very plainly what's a loan, what's a scholarship, if I take out this loan, how much am I going to owe? Um, And it's important when you look at those to remember you're looking at the first year of what's going to be a four-year or for some students a five-year process.
2: Is your sense that people are taking on more than they really should be in their student loans?
3: Um, It's kind of all over the map. There, There are people, I mean, look, you need the education, but you also need to understand what you're getting into and you need to think about the field that you're going into and what the salaries are in that field and what the unemployment rate is in that field. And then look at it in that context. You may have a young person or be a young person who has three offers. One of those schools is going to Put maybe because they've given you more scholarship and less loan, is going to put you in a position where you'll have more choices when you graduate. And one of them, you might be suffering a really big debt load right right after you graduate. And so that's a, that's a life choice. It's very hard for people to make at any age. It's especially hard for young people. But the first thing is to know before you owe, to know what is being offered to you so you can make that choice.
2: Yeah, and a lot of people (laughs) don't make those decisions in in many cases. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman with The Money Answer Show. Uh, My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We'll be back after this.
4: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you.
2: Well, welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand, Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Welcome back to the show, Gail. Thank you. We were talking about student loans. One other area is a servicing of student loans, uh, both federal and private. What are some of the problems and what are some of the solutions for CFBB for people whose student loans are not being credited correctly or they're having trouble with the people servicing those loans?
3: So we asked the public what's happening with student loans, and borrowers told us they had lost paperwork, misapplied monthly payments, couldn't get someone on the phone to answer their questions, and particularly in private student loans, very few options when there's financial hardship. We think there's more work to be done to develop something uh, for people who are in trouble and actually want to pay but can't make the whole payment on the private student loan side. And there is certainly the ability for the CFPB to do oversight in student loan servicing to make sure the paperwork isn't, you know, these probably had mortgages we don't want over here. The paperwork doesn't get lost, the payments get credited, and the statements are accurate.
2: Okay. Another area uh, that you've been looking at is payday loans, um, and uh, these are for people who couldn't get traditional loans, have pretty high interest rates. What is your view of the situation, payday loans, as an area you're thinking of either doing enforcement or more regulation in?
3: So we started our work in payday lending with a study. There's been a lot of talk about how people use payday loans. We wanted to really get behind the numbers and get some real new information about what's happening. We issued a preliminary report late last year, and we determined that um, people who take payday loans are in debt an average of 199 days per year. So they're taking more than one. Um, about half the people in our large sample had taken more than 10 payday loans in a year, and 14% had taken more than 20 loans in a year. Now, there was also a chunk of people who took one loan, and that was it, but there was a pretty sizable group of of people who were in this uh, debt treadmill.
2: Okay, and basically it's because they couldn't get a loan any other way, right? I mean, they they weren't choosing this, but they felt they had no alternatives and had to do it to pay their basic expenses.
3: Well, one of the issues... In payday lending is the degree to which people, if people can go in, take the loan, and pay it off and be done with it, that's one thing. But if they are paying a fee every two weeks again and again, or every payday again and again, essentially to borrow the very same money and not making progress on cutting down that debt, they may be uh, paying a lot more than expected for that credit. And this number, about 199 days out of the year in debt, suggests that there is a sizable group of payday borrowers who are just getting it for short-term credit, but are ending up paying quite a bit more than they might have expected on the front end.
2: So it sounds like you don't think that's a particularly good idea. Are you going to propose regulations or enforcement, or what would be the next step based on your studies?
3: So anybody who's interested in this topic can have a look at the study. It is posted at consumerfinance.gov. I can't tell you exactly what will happen next. This is a complicated area, and we certainly are looking at it deeply.
2: And how about on the business side, uh, as far as businesses taking out short-term loans? Uh, it's, kind of, it's, it's not exactly payday, but it's similar. They'll uh, pledge their receivables, like their credit card receivables. Do you have the same concern there?
3: You know, there's, a, there's an interesting gap in, in federal regulation oversight on business credit. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, by and large, the products and services that we look at and are allowed to look at under our statute are those directed to consumers and not those that are primarily for business purposes.
2: I see. So that's not really in your purview. Okay. It's not in our
3: purview, yeah.
2: All right. Now, another area that the agency looks at is uh, deposit products, and particularly uh, overdraft loans. What, what has been the problem there, and what have been some of your uh, solutions and regulations and enforcement actions?
3: So um, consumers probably remember that uh, we all got the right to say no thanks I uh, would prefer not to pay debit overdraft fees. That occurred before the Bureau came into existence. That's the so-called opt-in for debit overdraft charges. So let me just back up. Checking account. Overdraft is when you spend money that you don't have. If you spend it by writing a check, you might still have to pay an overdraft fee. If you spend it by presenting your debit card, it used to be you would get a fee on that and there were estimates that it was eighteen or nineteen billion a year that consumers were paying. The Federal Reserves regulation said consumers would have to say, Yeah, I want that program before they're charged a fee for it. That's so called opt-in for debit. We looked at debit overdraft and we saw a couple of interesting things in the sample that we looked at the customers of of some banks were eight times more likely to have signed up for debit overdraft than customers of other other banks. Now, these are are just the data. We're still analyzing what they mean. But what it could mean is that uh, people are being marketed more heavily in some places than others. And so the first question for you as a checking account customer is, am I signed up for this product or not? Am I signed up to pay an overdraft fee or not? If you're not signed up, you might want to leave it right there. If you are signed up, you might want to ask yourself, do I actually want to spend money using my debit card that I don't have? And if I do, how much is it costing me? And see if you want to stay with that. The other really kind of surprising thing that we saw in the study is we looked at consumers who are in overdraft status, meaning they owe money to the bank, for 20 days or more. And those consumers paid a range of fees from $15 to $140. Again, kind of suggesting that people might not know what their bank's pricing structure is because chances are those people who paid $140 weren't getting nine times more value out of their overdraft than the people who paid only $15.
2: Part of the problem was that people were getting multiple fees. Every time a check would be presented, they would get hit with another fee. It could be many, many fees. Is that still uh, allowed or is that not not allowed anymore? That
3: can be an issue. Also, some banks have a – they'll charge you every day that you're in overdraft status and some will only charge you once. So for every consumer, there are a couple things you can do to try not to overdraw. The first one is old-fashioned, but it matters. Keep track of how much money is in your account. Um, The second one is don't assume that your deposit is good the day you put it in. Your your bank is allowed to make you wait a certain amount of time, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Um, You can use technology to help you. You can sign up for text alerts that will tell you um, if you have a low balance. And that actually can be quite useful if you, you know, if you get a low balance alert and you, you sign up to get an alert telling you what your balance is just before your rent is due or your mortgage is due, that might uh, cause you to say, hmm, can I, you know, if I have some money somewhere else, can I move it over here to bring that balance back up and skip these fees?
2: Are there other areas in relating to bank deposits as far as disclosure on rates and fees and even interest rates people earn on money market funds and CDs that, that you're overseeing that there are some problems these days?
3: You know, we have a lot of consumer advice on a variety of products, including deposit accounts, and you'll find that at our Ask CFPB, which is at consumerfinance.gov. And one thing we say there is it's generally, in this interest rate environment, really not worth it to um, pay extra to get interest-bearing checking account. Your checking account is a transaction account. It's a safe place to put your money while you're paying your bills and the like, and just shop on how much you're going to pay for it and whether you can get a waiver if you have direct deposit and kind of the basic features. It's generally, if you pay extra to get interest-bearing checking, you're probably going to pay more in fees during that one month out of the year when you don't keep enough in the account than all the interest you'll earn for the year.
2: With interest rates where they are now for sure, that's right.
3: Yeah, well, Another- you know, when interest rates were higher, you know, one, one 15 or $25 fee that you didn't expect is going to eat up a whole lot of interest.
2: That's right. Okay, another area you oversee is the Credit Card uh, Act enforcement. The Card Act, I guess, was 2010, and that was mm-hmm. a major piece of legislation. Um, how has that changed the, the post-Card Act versus to what was happening to consumers before in uh, their, their use of credit cards?
3: The Card Act pretty much has led to the elimination of one of the fees we used to pay, and that's the fee for going over your credit limit. Um, it didn't make it illegal, but the, those fees seem to have pretty much dried up because customers would have had to opt into them, and, and they've just kind of stopped doing that. That's been helpful. Um, the CARD Act is giving you a statement that is maybe a little clearer. We think there's a lot more work to be done to make those statements even better and clearer. And for anybody who's carrying a credit card debt, you know, it's, it's easy to say just pay it off every month, but if you can't do that, another way to help yourself Dig, dig out, two ways to help yourself dig out. One is to pick a, a number, whether it's $10 a month or $50 a month, and just try to always add that to your minimum payment so you start to get ahead. And the other is to think about using your credit card only for things that are going to last longer than the amount of time it's going to take to pay for them.
2: Because people use that, it for meals and gas yeah, and all kinds of things. Meals
3: and gas, if you have to do this in cash, you're going you're to really be thinking about where your money's going.
2: But but you think in general a lot of things that were going on before the Card Act that were egregious as far as rates and fees and so on uh, have gone away?
3: A number of those things have gone away. The Bureau has also been very active in doing enforcement activity around so-called credit card add-ons. These are things when you call up to activate your card and they say, would you like to buy this product or that product and the other product? Some of those products were sold in a way that caused consumers to think they had to buy them to keep their card, and that's not Okay. Like insurances,
2: uh, particularly, insurance coverages of various types, insurance right? Insurances and
3: also identities have coverages. Uh-huh. You know, you're already not responsible if a thief gets your credit card and uses it. You have to take the hassle factor of reporting that it's happened. You have to see it on your statement. You have to report it. You're not actually responsible to pay a charge that was put on by a crook if you reported promptly. Um, so you don't really need some special insurance to take care of that. You already have that right under federal law.
2: Another area with the Credit Card Act was a marketing of credit cards to students, uh, it made it illegal to do it to solicit them under age 21 that they couldn't sign it up without a co-signer or their independent source of income. Has that made things better as far as students getting into trouble with credit cards?
3: We do see that, that young people generally seem to be turning much more to debit cards than to credit cards. That was a trend that predated the Card Act and appears to be continuing. Something very important if you are a 21 or 22 year old college student or if you have one in your family, don't co-sign for your friends. When you co-sign for a credit card, you are saying, I will pay that debt. In fact, you can come after me first, even if you know, the other person is, doesn't feel like paying or whatever. So don't sign for your girlfriend. Don't sign for your boyfriend. Don't sign for your roommate. And that's a, kind of a tough thing to think about if you're 21 and the person who's asking you to sign is 20. It looks like a favor for a friend. But that's going to stay on your credit record for a long time. It's going to affect how much you pay later when you try to get a car loan. It's going to affect how much you pay if you're you know, ready in the next seven years to try to get a home mortgage.
2: But parents are often asked to co-sign, not uh, your roommate, right?
3: Uh, it, could be, it can be anyone who's 21 or over. So we always think of it as parents, but there's a special risk if you are the 21-year-old in a group full of 20-year-olds and they all want to get credit cards and say, why don't you sign for me? You can wreck your economic future by
2: doing that. Yes, that's definitely a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah, Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau based in Washington. We'll be back after this.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gil Hellebrand, Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the federal agency based in Washington. Welcome back to the show, Gail. Thank you. So one area we want to talk about is older Americans, um, and they're running into trouble in many cases. They are uh, not don't have enough money. They're relying on their kids for money. Um, what are some of the things you're doing to help older Americans avoid uh, financial distress?
3: So for older Americans, we have a special office that looks at financial issues for older Americans. We have put out something called a set of financial caregiver guides. These are actually designed for people in the caregiver generation who may have to be managing someone else's money. Let's face it, most of us are not professional money managers. And if it's mom or Aunt Sally and now she's 80 and needs some help with her money, who am I to to do that? And so the idea is that the guides help people who are being asked for the first time to manage someone else's money. Of course they're going to do it honestly, but there are some rules of thumb about you know don't mix their money with your money. Don't spend it on things that mostly help you instead of helping the older person and the like. And these financial caregiving guides, which can be found at uh, consumerfinance.gov and also uh, through our general uh, government printing office site if you want to get them in hard copy. Just a real step-by-step. Keep the family informed. Um, Honor the person's wishes the best you can. Keep good records and don't mix the money with your money. And they go into some detail, but that's more or less what they say. So the Financial Caregiver Guides we're doing for older Americans. We also have Money Smart for Older Adults. This is a partnership with the FDIC. From the FDIC.gov website, if you want to give a class for older adults, you can get the training materials there. If you are an older person, you want to read it at home. If you're in that sandwich generation, you want to give it to maybe your mother, father, aunt, or uncle. You can get that at ConsumerFinance.gov. It's a nice booklet that talks about uh, avoiding scams. You know, unfortunately, old people sometimes are polite. They don't just hang up on the scammer. And, uh, you know, people were trained that that was rude and you don't hang up on people. But it turns out one of your best protections, if it sounds too good to be true, is to hang up. And if the person won't tell you who they really are, is to hang up. And if they won't give you a number where you can call them back to make sure it's really them, is to hang up. And certainly, anybody who calls you, when I mean, you have not initiated the call and wants your social security number, your credit card number, your checking account number, or your card security code, that's a red flag. Hang up.
2: What about reverse mortgages, which is a, a thing a lot of older Americans are getting into? Do you have any concerns about that area?
3: We have issued an extensive report on reverse mortgages. We did observe that many people who take them are taking them at age 62 when they're first eligible, and we recommend that you think long and hard about waiting longer. The younger you are when you take a reverse mortgage, the, the less money you get because it has to last over more years. If you wait till you're older, you get more money when you need it. And if you leave that money in your house and think about it later, it's a lot harder for a crook to steal it from you or a family member, which unfortunately sometimes it is family members who are stealing it. So we have suggested that people think about reverse mortgage as a, as a last resort and not as a first resort and that you not um, take it when you're in the young-old category as opposed to in the old-old category that we all hope to reach.
2: Um, Are there some new rules coming on reverse mortgages as far as requiring uh, credit checks? Right now there are really no credit checks. I've I've heard that there are several delinquencies in that area, and, for example, people are not able to afford their property taxes and insurance and therefore lose the home even though they've done reverse mortgages. Are there regulations coming to uh, put some limits on that?
3: We did identify the issue of people not being able to pay taxes and insurance as a serious reason why people were were losing out after taking a reverse mortgage. Those regulations would be by HUD and not by us because they're the federal guarantor of those mortgages. So uh, there has been some activity in that area, but we're not the ones who have it.
2: Okay. Now, another area you you do a lot in is financial education and savings. Yes. Uh, What is your overall sense of the level of financial education in America? Is it getting better or worse?
3: Well, the financial marketplace is getting more complicated every day. There are more types of products. There are more features on the products. There are more choices that we all have to make. So it's, it's hard to keep up. It's hard for everyone to keep up. We, On the savings side, we do know that savings can actually help people change their attitudes about money. We know that there was a very interesting study that kids age 15 who had a savings account in their own name were six to seven times more likely to actually fulfill their ambition to go to a four-year college, even after you control for family income and the amount saved. It wasn't about how much you'd saved. It was about these young people thinking of themselves as college material, and the savings account helped them to think of themselves as college material. We also know from a, a survey that came out last year that even for adults aged 18 to 44, kind of those key earning years, only 33% said they'd saved enough to cover three months of expenses. Now, the average unemployment rate is longer than three months in many parts of the country. So, uh, we all have some work to do to think about savings as a protection for ourselves and as something, you know, the experts say, pay yourself first.
2: So, what are some of the things that people can find out as far as financial education, both for themselves and their kids, at the consumerfinance.gov website?
3: So, uh, you can come to... Uh, consumerfinance.gov, click on the Get Assistance screen, and go to Ask CFPB, and you can ask any question you want about products. You can also click over to the Parents button or the Money Basics button. We have a set of questions and answers about things like, my teenager just got her first job. How do I explain the pay stub to her? All the way to my five-year-old goes to the grocery store with me. What can I teach her while we're there together? And it has a series of suggestions about how to talk to your kids about money. We also recommend that people talk to their, you know, if you're in that sandwich generation, you talk to your parents about money. Talk about it when everybody can still talk about it calmly before there's a crisis.
2: That often doesn't happen, (laughs) right? Yes.
3: (laughs) Easy to say, hard to do. You know, we've all just been home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and all those other holidays. How many of us said, Mom, I'm so glad you can still manage your money. Have you thought about how you'd like us to help you when that day comes? And part of what the financial caregiver guides will do is is be, you know, something people can look at together and talk about that. For our kids, we don't have to be money experts to help our kids. It's enough to help our kids understand that you don't get everything you want at the same time, that we make trade-offs about money. We make choices. And sometimes we protect our kids from seeing those choices, but if we help our kids understand that money is about making choices, about making plans, and about planning ahead to get a brighter future – We will help them to develop those habits that they will need to be successful adults.
2: Another area you look at briefly is auto financing. What are some of the problems with people financing cars these days?
3: So one of the big issues in car finance is shop around before you pick out the car. Shop around before you walk on the lot or in whatever way you're choosing to buy the car. People often uh, don't check all their choices. So check your local banks check your credit unions. You can pre-qualify for a car loan just like you pre-qualify for a home loan and compare it to what the dealer is offering you. You may uh, do better on your own and you will always do better if you're an informed consumer and you've really checked what the pricing are. You know, we will drive two miles to save five cents on a tank of gas. We should put that same amount of time into making sure we save hundreds of dollars on our car loans.
2: Indeed. Uh, Another area you regulate is fair lending practices. Uh, Do you see a lot of discrimination in lending going on these days?
3: So anybody who feels they they are or may have been discriminated against should be uh, filing a complaint with us and that's at 855-411-CFPB. I can't give you a generalization about how much. These are very individualized. But we do want to hear about it. Part of our mission is to make the markets work for everyone and discrimination is fundamentally inconsistent with that.
2: You also have programs, and you work with other groups to empower lower-income Americans. Maybe you're not doing it yourself, but what are some of the things you're trying to do to help lower-income Americans?
3: So we are right now um, have developed an educational a program that social workers can use if they're working with someone, say it's a job training program, for example. You actually really need to have a good look at your credit report if you're looking for a job, whether in a job training program or doing it on your own, because some employers are going to look at that. So we're trying to train the folks who are helping people get ahead economically to make sure they understand the money issues and can help train people to do those things like look at your credit report, um, think about how to slowly work your way out of debt, because let's face it, it's slow for everyone. But um, having somebody to help you figure out how to get started can be important.
2: Are you at all involved in helping people with uh, picking health insurance premiums under Obamacare?
3: Uh, that's not our job.
2: It is a major financial issue for a lot of people today as these premiums are going up and they're trying to figure these things out.
3: Um, you know, every, every, every place you spend money is a major financial issue. But Congress gave us the job of looking at the financial products and services and the decision, building decision-making skills about money, and that's where we're focusing our attention.
2: Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Gail Hillebrand. She's the Associate Director for Consumer Education and Engagement at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Their website is consumerfinance.gov. Lots of good things are on there that we've talked about. And thanks so much for being a guest on The Money
1: Answer Show, Gail. Thank you. And we'll be back
2: with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.